So John chapter 14, would you stand as I read? I'm going to read verses 1 through 10, but we'll be focusing on verse 6. So hear the word of the living God. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Let's pray. God of glory, we thank you. We thank you for this moment, this appointed time where we gather to worship, to praise, to give, and to hear. So Lord, would you prepare us even now where our hearts are hardened, would you plow them up with the plow of your grace Where our eyes are blinded to spiritual things and to you, would you cause the calluses of distraction, of over-entertainment, of anxiety and of worry, cause those scales to fall off? Where our ears are plugged up with the relentless noise of our culture, of the world around us, message after message, telling us what the treasure, what the value, what is beautiful and true and good. Would you quiet all those and unplug our ears that we might hear from you? And Father, I now pray that whatever proceeds from this mouth, that is not of you, would fall to the floor and remain unheard, for the grass withers and the flower fades But the word of our God endures forever. Lord Jesus, you said heaven and earth may pass away, but your word will never pass away. So, Lord, would you speak? Father, maker of heaven and earth, even now would you bend low and speak? Heavenly Father, speak even today. Your children are listening. Have mercy in the name of Christ. Amen. It's hard going through the Gospel of John this way because the Gospel of John is just rich. So we're kind of leapfrogging. If you're, if you're visiting or if you're just sort of jumping into where we've been, we're leapfrogging through these seven I am statements of Jesus. And when Jesus says, 
I am, fill in the blank, he is explicitly, to a Jewish hearer in the first century, he is explicitly identifying himself with the God of the Old Testament. He's explicitly saying that that God, the, that Yahweh, that if you were to read your Old Testament, um, and every time you see L-O-R-D in all caps, that's your Bible's way of telling you uh, that it's Yahweh, or uh, used to say Jehovah, but we know that's probably not actually how you said it. Yahweh is a good, educated guess uh, at the name of God. And, and the, the name of God, Yahweh, derives from, here's your Hebrew lesson. I, it's my favorite Hebrew word. You ready? It derives from the Hebrew word to be, which is, does anybody remember? Hayah. Just think, think this, like a ninja. Uh, not like a chef, but like a ninja. Hayah. Uh, so Yahweh comes from Hayah, uh, which is the Hebrew word to be. You're all Hebrew scholars now. Welcome. I'm not. I'm just kidding. Uh, but... So that God is the self-existent God, that he has always been, and he's always been who he is. That there's no way, now this is incredibly significant at Christmas, but that there's no way that God in his substance and in his essence changes. God does not progress. God does not move. God does not become. God doesn't learn. God is not how, he was not somehow deficient before creation and therefore needed creation to fill a deficiency within himself. God was not nine-tenths of what he could be and then he created and he finally actualized and became everything that he could be. Become all you can be. So God said, I'm going to create a world with a bunch of knuckleheads like me and you. No, God has always been perfectly blessed, complete and full. I am is a communication that God is. And all that is in God is God. It's incredibly significant. Now, there, and I'm not going to change, this is a uh, 3,000 pound rabbit in church history. In, in modern theological conversation. So I'm not going to chase it. Uh, We probably need to shoot it, cook it for Christmas dinner. Um, But when Jesus says, I am, he's saying, that's me. And so you have this profound moment. Right? You have this profound moment where Jesus is saying, I am, that he is, that you have before you laid out for the first century hearers here, his apostles and, and uh, the, first, the 12 disciples, they're not quite apostles yet, uh, that in John chapter 14, that he's saying, here before you is the meeting of the eternal, self-existent, self-sufficient, immutable, omniscient, omnipotent God in flesh before you. And that I haven't, in my essence, changed there have been so many studies, you know, every year I think um, a ministry called Ligonier puts out the state of theology or something like that. Uh, and it, oh, I can't read it. It just makes me so sad. Uh, the state of theology in, in evangelical churches. Uh, and there's one question every year. There's one question that always asks, you know, that pe- people like you 
in an evangelical, gospel-believing Bible, hopefully gospel-believing, gospel-preaching, Bible-believing, Bible-preaching, like all that kind of stuff. Church, it's some variation of, was Jesus created? Was, Was the Son of God made? And your answer, if you are ever a survey taker for the love, your answer is, no, he was not created. There should be an amen in here. No. <laughs> Jesus does not come into being. He does not come into being. Right? The eternal second person of the Trinity does not come into being. He is the only begotten of God. He is begotten from God before the ages. Right? If we were to read uh, the Nicene Creed again. He's God of God and light of light. And so when Jesus is, is putting this, I am the way, the truth, and the life, or I am the bread of life, or I'm the, um, I'm, I'm the true vine, I'm the door of the sheep, I'm the good shepherd, and all of these are, are explications. He's explaining to you, this is what God is like to you. It's important. Because there's this meeting of the eternal self-existent God. You understand what I mean by self-existent? You don't know anything else that is self-existent. Because only God is self-existent. Everything else, everything else, spiritual, temporal, spatial, physics and calculus and math and up and down and two plus two and you and me, everything else is derivative from him. He alone is self-existent. Satan's not. Satan and all his little cronies aren't. Gabriel, famous, and Michael, right? These archangels that we see in Scripture, they're not. God alone is self-existent. God alone is, if you will, derives existence from himself. And he therefore is. It's not even a good way to say that he's always been. Because time is derivative from him. And my point in all of this is I want you to have a bigger picture of God than you walked in here with as you walk out. Right? This is the point of this point. This introduction is what this is supposed to be. I am. And Jesus joyfully, intentionally connects himself in this passage with the Father. At the very beginning, the very first verse, do not let your hearts be troubled. And we'll talk about that in just a second. But believe in God, believe also in me. That the, that the, the solution to your disquieted spirit, your, the solution to the, your confusion about your context or the place in which you find yourself, the solution to all of these things is faith. Yeah, right. So, VBS answer. Good job. But Jesus says, believe in God, trust God, have faith in God, and also in me. Do you see what he just did? Jesus just laid before you an incredibly high doctrine of Christ. If you're going to believe in God, believe also in me, because the implication is I am also God. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit God is triune. God does not manifest himself as triune. 
He does not uh, exist in different modes of triune. God is triune. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There was never a time when God was not that. Believe in God, believe also in me. So why are they disquieted? Why are they upset? Why are we upset? But maybe let's get to that in a second. But why are they upset? Well, Jesus is in the end of chapter 13, after saying, I give you a new commandment, love one another. Everybody's going to know you're my disciples, that you love one another. And he says, I'm going away. And where I'm going, you can't come. Where I'm going, you can't come. And so all of a sudden, these guys who have built their lives upon Christ. You remember, they've, they've laid it all down. The fishermen quit fishing. The tax collector quit tax collecting. And they built their life upon, lives upon Jesus. And all of a sudden, Jesus is like, I'm out. And you can't come. Peter, in response to this in 36, 37, 38 of chapter 13, he says, where are you going? He says, you can't come. And Peter's like, Lord, I will. I, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. His famous last words of Peter. Jesus says, will you lay down? Can you get the irony? Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Why are they upset? Jesus is leaving. What's Peter's solution to his disquieted spirit? Himself. Where does Peter look? I will lay down my life. Look at the strength of my commitment, Jesus. You see this show up several times in Peter's life. And Peter, what we see in the Gospels. Lord, we've left everything for you. Look at, look at this. And Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled. But I think in between in that little blank space in your Bible, don't let your heart be troubled. Don't trust yourself. Don't trust the strength of your commitment. Don't trust the strength of your resolve. Don't trust the the strength of your mental capacity or your emotional elevation in worship. Don't trust yourself. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And dear ones, this really only works to calm your soul if you have some sort of grasp of who it is that you're believing in. When Jesus is inter- interjecting himself into Peter and the rest's confusion and doubt and fear, and he's turning their eyes away, there must be something that they begin to look to. You could go into our world today and say, believe in God. And how many people are going to say, yeah, I do. I do believe in God. And the question really should be like, what God are you believing in? Is it a God that has revealed himself in Scripture? Or is it a God that you have made up through your own imagination? Or that you have cobbled together, which is more our culture speed, that we've, we've cobbled together these images of God, that God must be like this. 
And so we pull a little bit of this and we pull a little bit of this and we pull a little bit of this. And so God looks like some sort of patchwork doll that we have knit together. There's a little bit of tolerance and a little bit of acceptance and a whole lot of bit of love, but not that kind of love. This kind of love that we like over here, this gooey, gooey emotional stuff. Uh, anybody, you know, he loves us, but he's kind of, he doesn't get in our business too much. He's kind of, he's like a deistic God, but he's not quite deistic God. Like we, we kind of put all these pieces together or, or maybe we're like the, uh, the, this is going to be a, like the witches in, in Macbeth, right? The Shakespeare play. And you're just dumping stuff in the cauldron and you're spinning it around. No Shakespeare people. That's okay. It's been a long time. And what out pops this image of God. Believe in God, believe also in me. If your image of God that you are looking to in the moment of confusion, of trial, and of fear is one of your own making, it will fold just like a patchwork doll would. It will offer no consolation. It will offer no cleansing of conscience. It'll just be an idol without the silver and the gold and the wood. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. What wonderful words of comfort. (laughs) My last church, I had a lady um, that she, I did a funeral. And I used, I read this passage at the graveside. And she pulled me aside rather sternly later on. And she said, um, when you do my funeral, don't take my mansion away. You guys know if you read the KJV, you know. Um, <laughs> that, that in the Father's house, there are many places for us to be together. But more importantly, that there is a place for us to be with Jesus. And so that what Christ is doing... Is, is really the culmination and the fulfillment of God's promise to his people from the very beginning that he would be their God and they would be his people. And for that, per, that, that covenant promise, that promise that is, at, is like a thread that flows, it is knit through every one of God's covenant engagements from, from even from uh, before Noah. You could see it there, at least in principle, and definitely into Abraham and Moses and David, that you will be my people and I will be your God. And what Christ has come to do, that his departure here is necessary for that to become an explicit fact. Christ must leave if we will dwell with him. Christ must do the work that he came to do if we will be with him, which is the very heart of the disciples. You can't get on their case. They just want to be with Jesus. What a wonderful longing. And yet, as one commentator says, their longing for intimacy with Jesus was actually somehow getting in the way of obedience. That they were at a place in their lives that they felt Jesus, that they were experiencing Jesus, and Jesus was saying, something else has to happen. 
something else. There's a new season that, is, that we're entering into. But this new season is one in which that, God, that I am furthering and accomplishing my Father's will. That I'm fulfilling the promise, Jesus says. You will be my people. And I will be your God. And I will dwell with you. This is the promise of the promised land and of the temple. All of these things coming to a head in Christ. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. Where I am, there you may be also. Where I am, there you will be. This becomes the promise fulfilled in the Spirit. And it will be a promise seen in glory. And Thomas says to him, Lord, well, he, he says, I, you, know the way I'm, you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas says, Lord, how do you, how, we, Lord, we don't know the way. How do, you, how do we know the way? How do we know? Where is the way? How do we go the way that you would have us go? Which is the direction we should take? Do we take a left at Capernaum or a right at Capernaum? Do we go straight at Bethsaida? Or do we make a, we go through the, the traffic circle and bear left? Is it south by southwest or north by northwest? Or is it east or west or whatever? Which, where's the way? And in a, such a Jesus move, he says, the way is not, it's not, no, they didn't have GPS, but it's not GPS. I used to drive around looking for, uh, when, I was, when I had more time, um, I used to ha- look for waterfalls. And uh, I had this big, I think it was a gazetteer, something like that. It was like this big atlas of like South Carolina. I had one for South Carolina. I had one for North Carolina. I had one for Georgia. And I mean, they were like this, big red things. And they were, you had a big map on the back and you could open it up and it was like this, it took this block and it just zoomed in. You could have all the topography there and you could see where all the streams were. And you're like, maybe, one, maybe there's one there. The worst was when you were trying to find your way to go somewhere, though. Because you couldn't, you were too zoomed in to know, like, this, where does this road go in a mile? You have to flip to the next page. Where does this road go after that? I have to turn there. Where do I, you have to flip to the next page. It was so tedious. Kids, this was before smartphones. My phone didn't work in the woods or anywhere, really. Um, and sometimes we get so located. We get so, you understand what I mean by located? We get so zoomed in that this is so good. Here, here's the waterfalls. Here's all the beautiful things. Here's, it's right here, but we have, at some point, we have to go. At some point, we have to go. And Jesus says the way is less topographic, geographic. It's less about roads and turns and twists. But rather, it's about me. How do we know the way? We don't want to miss it. And Jesus says, I am the way. In, in direct response to Thomas's question, how do we know the way? Jesus says, I am. Am. Remember that phrase, I, I am the way. The way to what? I am the way to the Father. 
No one comes to the Father but through me. The only way that we arrive in the Father's house, the only way that you get your dwelling place, or if you prefer your mansion, whatever it is, it's going to be good. The only way you get there is Jesus. The only way you come into the Father's house, this is, a, this is the, using the language of the Father's house for heaven, for glory, for salvation, for eternal life with God. That's what I mean by the Father's house. That there is one way. There's one way. And if there's anything scandalous about the gospel of Jesus, particularly today, it is this. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved except for Jesus. There is no other salvation. There is no other way into heaven. There is no other way into salvation or receiving eternal life. There is no other way for any per- anyone. Anyone. There is no other way. And Christian, you must plant your flag there. And let the wind howl. Let the culture blow like a tempest in a teapot. And at one day it might cost you severely. But you cannot compromise because there is only one I am. Because there's only one I am, there's only one way. And because it's not by effort, it's not by who you were born from, right? This is chapter 1 of of John. It's not by the will of the flesh or by the will of man, but it's born by the will of God. And if it's God's heaven and it's God's glory, if it's the Father's house, He sets the front door and He says who comes and who goes. He sets the rules. Not rebellious humanity. We do not make the rules and then make God abide by them. The only God that will abide by your rules is that patchwork doll that you've made in your imagination. One that has the little, you know, the little stick arms and legs that that like a child's toy that they can bend and mold and shape in any way that they want. Too often, that's how we want to treat God. God should do this, and then God should do this, and God should do this. And that's the only one that will say, whatever you do, you're fine. Just do you. Just follow your way. I mean, is there anything more antithetical to our world today? It is not your way. Your way leads off a cliff. Your way leads to spiritual destruction. There is a way, the the writer of Proverbs says, Solomon says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is death. Your own opinion of a matter is not what makes a matter right. You are not, you are not the arbiter. You are not the judge of what is right and what is wrong. You are not the judge of who gets into heaven and who who does not get into heaven. You do not set the rules. We do not set the rules. 
And it's not by our effort that we arrive in heaven. It is only by connection with Christ. This vital union, vital as in living union to the Lord Jesus by grace through faith. Where you are trusting Christ for who he is. And what he has done. Only he, if he is the way, that that means that Christ is simultaneously both, or I don't know what, it's not both, it'd be three, right? But he he is simultaneously the destination, the doorway, and the road. Christ is simultaneously the destination. Where I am, there you'll be also. What is the hope of the Christian? That I would be with Jesus. And we will be with him forever. This is the treasure of the gospel. It's God himself and it's Christ welcoming us in. But he's also the door of the sheep. We saw in chapter 10. So that he is the only front door into heaven. He's the only front door into eternal life experienced today and realized tomorrow. But this word here, this I am the way. It's not only that he's the destination, and it's not only that he's the door, but he's the path that we must walk in this life. That's what that word means, path or roadway. When Christ is our way, then we live attached. We live connected. We live in communion with him through the Spirit. Or as the writer, the, I mean, as it's... The writer Paul, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians says that we walk in step with the Spirit. God sets out the path that we should go. And the path is the path of Christ. It's not simply that you do the things that Jesus did. It's not just that you you see Him as a model or as an example but that you walk with Him. You live with Him. And this is the kind of relationship that God is calling us to. And sometimes Jesus takes a turn in the road that you're saying, we, where are we going? Why are we here? But all that matters is that Jesus is there. All that matters is that Jesus has brought you to that place. He's brought you into that valley. He's brought you to the mountaintop. He's brought you into that church. He's brought you into that relationship. And you are there with Him. You walk with Him. But He is the way because He is the truth and the life of God. Jesus is the truth of God. That that which is true true is true because of Jesus. There is no truth that is distinct from Him in the sense that it somehow derives from somewhere else. That He is the... what Chapter 1, 14 says, verse 14, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld Him, the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, there's a huge sermon here that I don't have time to preach. But we need the truth of God. The truth of God is that which has been given to us. That which has been revealed to us. 
God's truth, if we were going to know anything, if we're going to know the truth and the truth is going to set us free, then we are dependent upon the revelation of God. Not just the book of Revelation, but God disclosing Himself to us. How do we know God? How do we know the things of God? How do we know the truth about God? God tells us. Not only do the heavens declare the glory of God, the earth, the, 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 the expanse, His glory. Psalm 19.1, but verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. That hearing, that faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by the word of Christ. Not only does he speak in creation, but he speaks explicitly in his word. Would you know the truth? Come to his word. If you're going to know the way, you have to know the truth. He is the way because he's the truth. He is the way because he's the truth. It is not an illusion. It is not an opiate for the masses, as some dead person said. It is not a collective delusion, but it is Christ who is the truth of God. In Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Paul writes to the Colossians. Would you know the truth? Come to Christ. Would you know true wisdom? Come to Christ. But if Christ is going to be the way, you must know what the Scriptures say about Him. But not only is He the truth of God, but that He is the life. This is the second time. Chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He is the way because He's the truth. He's the, he's the, yeah, He's the way because He's the truth of God. And He's the way because He is the life of God. He's the life of God in two ways. And I'm going to, this, this is a jumbo jet liner that we're going to land one day. Someday. He is the life of God in two ways. He's the life of God because that all life comes from him. Full stop. Let me say it again. All Glitter everywhere. Who did this? Probably mom. Anyway, mom. It's, it's beautiful. I'm just picking. This one's annoying me. He, all life. So the life that you enjoy, the body that is working, some of you, it's, you know, I know you've gone through, I'm not making light of it. Some of you, it works better than others. Some of you are in a physical trial right now, but the life that you have right now is life that is given through the Son. All and don't fall for the lie of the naturalism and the mechanicalism that surrounds us in our world saying it's just a product of natural forces. This person begat this person, they had they begat this person, begat this person. It's just the product of nature. Life, he is the life of God, and his life is the light of every man. John chapter 1, verse 9. If he's the truth of God, then he's the life of God, and all life comes from him. Not only human life, which is made in the very image of God, but insect life. 
Bald eagle life. Blue whale life. The lives of angels and the lives of demons. He is the life of God. There is no life that flows from a different source. And therefore all life is dependent and contingent upon him. Every movement of your diaphragm to cause air to go in and out of your lungs is because of the life of God. Whatever the spiritual sustenance that's required for angels and for demons, it is from the life of God. It is not independent from Him. It is dependent upon Him. But perhaps more profoundly for us, He is the life of God. Not only that He gives life, that if there's any life, it's from Him. But He's the life of God because He is the one who brings spiritually dead people to life. He is the life of God. And this is another reason it must be Jesus alone. Because there's nobody else who has done what Christ has done. And there's nobody else who offers what Christ offers. Forgiveness and cleansing and new life. It is only He who has gone to the grave as a substitute for us and who rose again. You know, you want to know what's happened to every single, every single one of every, the earthly philosophers, the religious leaders, the great men and women of humanity. Their bones are rotting in the ground somewhere. But there is Christ. There is Christ alone who rose. And because he lives, this is later in chapter 14, because he lives. We live also. He takes away our sin-saturated dead life. Places it upon Himself on the cross. Buries it in the tomb where it belongs. And He gives in its place His very own life. So that you would have spiritual life today. It must be a life alive by God's grace. And alive to God through Christ. There is no other spiritual life. There's no no other spiritual vitality. And dear ones, this is the crux of your problem. Whatever you think your problem is today, this is it. Sin has killed us. The wages of sin is death. Death has expelled us from the Garden of Eden. Death has removed us from the presence of God. And yet we have Jesus, who is the way. And if he's going to be the way, he must make a way. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 3, verse 24? God finally expels Adam and Eve. And you know what he does? You all know. What does he post up there? The cherubim, he puts these warrior angels... You know what the scripture says in Genesis 3.24? That they would bar, they would block the way to the tree of life. You could read somewhere like in Isaiah 43.19. He says, behold, verse 18, don't look to the former things. Behold, I'm doing something new. I will make a roadway. I will make a path in the wilderness. 
that it takes the I am Jesus to come into the overgrown forest of our sin, to blaze a path and to say, follow me into life. There's no one else who's done it. It is only him. No one else has gone to our wickedness and our wretchedness and our rebellion and taken it down by the roots. No one else has gone to our greatest enemy, sin and Satan and death, and laid them in the grave and said, follow me to life. There's no one else. Where else will you go for life? Where else will you go to come alive, dear one? It is only Jesus. He alone is the life of God. He is the life of God. And because He is the truth of God, and He is the life of God, He is the way for us to come to God. So would you come to God today? Maybe for the first time. Maybe you're like Peter saying, God, I'll do all this stuff for you. I'll lay down my life. I'll give away all my stuff. I'll give away my money. I'll go build this and do this and all this stuff. Look at how great I am. And at some point, you'll reach the pinch point like Peter. That his profession of strength I'll never leave you, Jesus. It sounds great after a full belly in a secure room. But all of his protestations of strength and of vigor melt away in the dark garden of Gethsemane. They melt away as they see Jesus on trial. And if you're trusting in yourself today to save you, that somehow your moral good will outweigh your moral bad, there will come the pinch point for you where it is evidently true that you are not strong enough, that you are not enough to save yourself, that you desperately need what Christ gives you and what Christ does. Give up moralism and legalism and all your isms. Give up on yourself and trust Christ. Trust Christ. Christian, maybe today is a day of renewal. Where you find fresh courage for the path that's before you. You don't know the twists and the turns. But the one thing that you can lay hold of today is Jesus by faith. You can lay hold of him. You can, you can call out to him and he will, he will bend low and listen to you. He says, come to me all you who are weary and I will give you rest. You don't have to know the twists and the turns. You just have to know the way. You just have to know Christ. So maybe today is a day where you need to, you've been, there's been, and I know it, I've been there. There's this anxious wrestling with what should I do? Where should I go? The invitation is to draw near to Jesus. If you do anything today, draw near to Jesus. Come to him in prayer, open up his word, and just say, Lord, I need you near. I want to be near you. I want to be with you. And I want to obey you. But let obedience flow from intimacy and he will show you the way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have, you've come and you've promised, you've attended your word with your promise and we ask, Lord, that you would accomplish your will that you would tie the hands of the adversary who would pluck the seed of the gospel off of hearts even now. 
pray that you would stifle the briars and the thorns, the cares of this world that would rise up in these hearts and these minds and choke out a, an awareness and a pursuit of Jesus. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would hew out and dig out the stones that would make these hearts shallow, not prepared for the pinch point of persecution or of difficulty, that the word, the gospel, that your word would land upon good soil in these hearts and it would grow up and bear fruit, exponential fruit. We believe you for such things. Amen. Would you stand as we respond together?